You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. With downloads approaching the million mark, and an archival library numbering in the thousands, the Yeshiva of Newark podcast has been striving to continuously upgrade our content, professionalize our audio sound, along with altering approaches in light of much-appreciated listener feedback. I firmly believe that a niche has been carved out that resonates with many on the wide spectrum of observant Jews. This explains why we continually rank high in independent online lists of top yeshiva podcasts. That proud edifice is in real danger of toppling and disappearing. We need the help of our listeners to continue to record and edit to promote a product that has been a balm and instructor to so many. Just $36 as a minimum donation from a thousand of you out there will keep us afloat as a new arc of straight, intelligent, humorous discussion, lectures, debate, and inquiry, while the destructive waters of ignorance and identity politics, cyberbullying crash around us. Your generous contributions will seal and galvanize this arc till it comes to a satisfying rest in an era of Moya Heralding Mashiach, Mheira, Biameinu, Amen. And now, Emeritus Rex. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Pupko of Kot St. Luke's Beth Israel Beth Aaron Synagogue. Rabbi Pupko, as we are in other Rishon, uh, there's an interesting halacha, Rabbi Pupko, that says that when you have a dintora, you might have a civil court case. This might be a good time to have it uh, if you are from our tribe, you know, and, and, and you possibly will win because you never know what's going to happen. Let's talk about what's turned into the most interesting sort of civil case. It's actually a case against Donald Trump for election interference. But now it's turned out that the prosecutor has now become uh, the defendant, Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade. Let's talk about, you know, the big picture that drilled down into this one. The big picture is that Donald Trump is being prosecuted in, in Washington, in New York, Georgia. We know that he, his popularity was floundering and waning uh, up until the point when all of these indictments were announced last year. And then his popularity was restored. He's being seen by his core supporters or, 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 or those who had supported him in the past as the victim of politically inspired criminal and civil prosecutions. There's a case of the hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels. There's the case that was just two cases that were recently concluded, one on a civil fraud case and overstating his wealth in order to get loans. And then there was the uh, the libel decision in the case of uh, that alleged uh, sexual assault in a uh, Manhattan department store. And then there's the case for election interference in Washington. And there is uh, the confidential documents case and the obstruction of justice in that case. And then there's the election interference case in Georgia. He has a lot of court cases. The case that was brought in Georgia, which is what you referenced, uh, was a case where they actually used the RICO statute, which was originally intended to be used against criminal enterprises like the mafia or the Cosa Nostra, or uh, or Satmer, that uh, that was a joke. You know, I, I would have said Murder Incorporated. All right, but 
Trump seems to be blessed with extraordinary good fortune. He was able to really, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, uh, derail the prosecution, but certainly distract the prosecution with, uh, it was actually a, it wasn't he that started this. It was somebody indicted along with him who brought to light the fact that the special prosecutor and the prosecutor are involved in a romantic uh, relationship and she paid him an enormous amount of money. Now, why that should have an impact on the case is a little questionable, but there's a hearing, go- there was just a hearing concluded about it where Fannie Willis testified. Did the romance start before the guy was hired or only after he was hired? Did she benefit directly from the money that was paid to him, like over $650,000 for this? I mean, a a complicating factor. It certainly sullies the reputation of those who have filed this indictment against uh, Trump. I think Ben Shapiro came up with the best hop when he said, what you talking about, Willis? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) But what what I thought was uh, interesting was, you know, the discussion that can where all their trips that they were taking to Belize and other Aruba, I'm not sure where else they went. They traveled almost as much as you do. You know, it's, it's incredible, but they, they, they were all over the place. And the question was, where'd the money come from? Because he was getting now paid a tremendous amount of money for being the special prosecutor. And the idea, of course, here was that she was receiving the kickbacks of all these right, wonderful so trips. The cost of interest, whatever. I'm not sure what the cost yeah, yeah, was. Right. But, but what I thought was great was, you know, they were trying to zero in on the lie or the half truth that it was all paid in cash. None of the money came out of what he was getting well, paid. Fashion or house. It's a really strange story. Right. So basically what she said was, is that she always has a lot of cash. And what came out was that, that we don't understand the black experience that even blacks who have risen to a very high profile position in government offices, whether they're in federal or state, there's still this fear that they need six months worth of money. There's still the man might still come against them. And she brought her father to testify. And her father was, of course, this ancient Black Panther guy who came up there. I didn't see it, but supposedly he confirmed, yeah, that this is the way we we deal. We're supposed to believe everybody has a go bag like Jason Bourne. You know, packed with cash, a gun, and six that's right. That's right. Because you got to be ready. But, but, but the idea was is that that America is still a dangerous place, and that for, especially for blacks. And this is really what I think. You know, I just want to comment on whether it's Claudine Gay or Fannie Willis. Any single time that there is the spotlight being shown on uh, a person who seems to not be acting the way they should, and now the the lights are exposing them, it becomes. You know, it becomes a, 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 a high profile lynching back in Georgia or Mississippi. Don't, don't you, aren't you getting sick of that already? I think a lot of people politely nod when they hear these things, but don't believe them. There's this inability to recognize the enormous progress, unprecedented, unparalleled progress that America has made in racial issues. I, I, you, you know, Lance Morrow got it right in his, op-ed from last week's uh, Wall Street Journal when he said that, yes, it is important to have Black History Month, but if Black History Month ends up wallowing in, in a past and denying any change, 
if it's about swimming in victimhood continuously, I know this is a point you've made a lot, then really it's it's an exercise in deadening uh, the whole arc of progress. He also talked about the fact that black culture is not just an American force, an extraordinary force in American culture, but worldwide. And, you know, whether it's uh, in music or the arts or in, or in sports, I mean, this idea that we're living in a in a, in a racist society is not true. I, I don't believe there's right, systemic... But, 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 it, but again, once again, when the cards start to fall, the only way to explain why the spotlight is so hot is because uh, George Wallace is, is shining it. Yeah. Maybe this is also going to help Trump as well. Well, it certainly helps him in the Georgia case. There's no question. The cases in New York that are going to be the, 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 the recent case on civil fraud wasn't decided by a jury, but by a judge. And, I, and the vagaries of that and how that evolved is, are interesting. But the penalty imposed upon Trump was enormous. I mean, this was a, a, a civil fraud alleged that had no a victim. No one came forward and said they got ripped off. This is an unprecedented penalty. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, and here's the other thing that people don't realize, I, I don't think they realize, is that if you appeal a criminal conviction, that's, that's fine. If you appeal a civil conviction, it's not that simple. You have to post bond for the entire amount. Right. And that's what goes so close to four hundred million dollars. And 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 this and, and, and properties may, may be taken from him. It's uh his ability to do business in New York has been taken from him. When when prosecutors run for election, as Bragg and Alvin Bragg did in New York and Letitia did in New York State, part of your campaign saying you're gonna go after Trump, right? Come on. Listen, in the Stormy Daniels case, right, the hush money case, right, the previous, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the previous uh, DA in Manhattan said you can't charge this. And now this DA has come in and said, yeah, you can. Right. That was the hush money played with Michael Cohen and whether it was a campaign expense. And, it, it, you know, these are the kind of little things that are often ignored or slap on the wrist that, you know, uh, uh, you know, that, that have been made into a cost celeb. The strongest case, I think, against Trump was the holding of confidential documents. Right. The, that would be that would be the Florida case, right? That's the Florida case. But in that case, that's been harmed by Biden because Biden, you know, Trump supporters will say Biden did the same thing and they let him off because he's half senile. But what 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 gets Trump in trouble in the documents case, like Nixon and Watergate, it wasn't the crime; it was the cover up. That means Trump did engage in reckless and uh, and infantile attempts at obstruction, telling people to move boxes around while they're on camera. One of the things I think, which maybe our listeners are unaware of, if they're not listening to the Talking Heads, is that these state cases are crucial because if if it turns out that Trump somehow wins uh, election he cannot pardon himself for convictions under state law but also what's interesting here is this is coming at a moment when Biden's uh, lack of mental acuity has become much more of an issue where where newspapers like the New York Times are being criticized by the left for even writing about it 
which is, I mean, it's so, you know, it's, it's obvious and on display for all to see. And then you had the special prosecutor's report talking about how they won't proceed with the prosecution. And one of the reasons mentioned was that Biden is a doddering old uh, half-sentenced man would, 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 would elicit sympathy from a jury and they couldn't get a conviction. So, you know, his mental issues are, are you know, I mean, you watch him walk. He walks like a guy in a nursing home. I mean, we, we you know, we all recognize that walk. Listeners who who don't suffer from senility will remember that we spoke about this last week. And where are, a, where are we? I don't know. Who are you? <laughs> Why okay, are we so, sitting in this? So I, I guess you know with, with you know the I, you know what happens. I, I think when you have too many balls juggling in the air, uh, it, it it turns out to be a massive confusion. This this uh, idea that the Trump anti-Trump people wanted to throw everything at him, six, seven different cases, I think it ends up diffusing the power of each one. And that's why I think, you know, the the stratagem was probably the wrong one to pursue. Biden's star is not rising. And I'm saying is that the the phenomenon of Trump becoming more popular because of these uh, criminal and civil prosecutions will only be energized further by Biden's decline. Trump has said some crazy things about NATO last week or whatever, but you know, his core support is certainly on evaporating. Listen, we've said this over and over again. I mean, Biden's the only Democrat that Trump could beat and possibly Trump's the only Republican that Biden could beat. Both parties need better candidates. Everyone recognizes that. And there's persistent rumors. I mean, less than rumors talk. There's talk about the Democrats moving on Biden. But again, it looks like Kamala Harris is keeping him in power because no one wants Kamala or an open convention. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's like a train wreck, a slow motion train wreck that everybody's watching unfold and no one's intervening. Go back to the go back to the Wall Street Journal. I saw Peggy Noonan uh, try to raise the specter again of LBJ, who uh, very late in the uh, in the contest, March, I think was the end of March 1968. Uh, people thought he had already had, I think he'd already won delegates already from the convention when he saw how, when he saw how strong of a, of a showing Eugene McCarthy pulled off, LBJ decided not to seek reelection. McCarthy didn't win a primary. He just came close. And that was enough for LBJ to say, I'm not going to seek reelection. Right. Right. Before we move on to Eretz Yisrael that we love and are so connected to, let me just point something out to you that you might not have heard about in Canada, but there is something that is now being seen on the Manhattan skyline. I'm, I'm reading to you from the Agudas website, not content to have others tell their story. Know Us, a project of Agudas Yisrael of America, has erected large billboards across the Manhattan skyline. The billboards depicting a yarmulke-wearing teen and the words, our boys will not be educated to hate America, celebrate how American Orthodox Jewish children are taught to be upright, peaceful, and patriotic to their country. Before every bite they take, and from the moment they open their eyes, every Orthodox Jewish boy and girl is taught to express gratitude constantly. No one will agree with everything their country does, but living in a country that stands for freedom, justice, and equality and protects the free exercise of religion begs that inculcated gratitude, said Mr. Avram Weinstock, a good as chief of staff and director of NOAS. After publicly confronting protracted coverage by the New York Times, which sought to portray Orthodox Jews as backward and benighted, and after what media and observers credit as denying the Times the Pulitzer Prize for this coverage, 
know us is proactively sharing an authentic perspective about the Orthodox Jewish community and its, and its education. That Orthodox Jews are, as a rule, eminently peaceful, upstanding citizens, speaks to the unique education they receive. I mean, you know, call us peaceful. I mean, has anyone ever been to a Kiddush and a Shulon Shabbos? I mean, we are a violent horde of very hungry people. I, I'm a little shocked at the Yagoda in this whole ep- episode because what I think the Yagoda should have taken a principled position in defense of the overwhelming majority of ultra-Orthodox yeshivas that do have a secular curriculum instead of defending this tiny handful that have that don't, right? And, 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 and you know, and the, the Yagoda is so obsessed with maintaining its street cred with the, uh, with, with the, with the ultra-Haredi uh, community that they uh that they insisted in emboldening the perception i believe that all these yeshivas are the same and they're not there's a tiny tiny number that don't have a secular education and why the good can't take a principled position in favor of that i it, beyond me beyond why can't they take you know there should be a secular education i mean the yeshivas in europe had secular education for god's sakes i mean what, 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 this is nothing new I, I understand what you're coming from but the is it true in these schools is love of america taught is patriotism taught they have a, a boy standing with a yarmulke with the flag are we pledging allegiance to the flag are the boys knowledgeable in American history? Do they know and are they proud of what America has become? Or is it all bottled into the Hashkocha Protis and therefore they don't really have any details about what American life is? The Orthodox world I grew up in is radically different than the Orthodox world that's present today. Uh, my Orthodox day school, we pledged allegiance. I mean, as did every school in America in those Yes, days. we did. Uh, we, I pledged allegiance to the flag. And, and, you know, I had, my kids grew up in Canada. They all pledged allegiance to America. I made them do it on, on a regular basis. They still make fun of me for this. And I know I don't believe that Orthodox Jews and those yeshivas are taught about the greatness of America. I think they talk about it as being a bracha that we're okay here. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I, I think the only thing this means is that unlike what's being taught in many public schools by the 6019 project to basically be embarrassed right, about so him. That's what I wanted to get to. The point of this is two messages here, right? I mean, maybe just one. The, the message is you've been attacking our, our schools. And it's one way of saying, look at your schools, right? Your schools are being taught that, that, that America was founded in order to enslave, right? In order to persecute. Now I'm exaggerating because that's certainly not the curriculum at every school. And there's the backlash against it in most places, in many places, uh, against critical race theory. But campus life today is the direct result of the teachings that have gone on in elementary and high schools across America. No question that, you know, the teachers have embraced this left-wing curriculum, this very critical of America, uh, you know, posture. And that's happened in ethnic studies courses in places like California and others. And what the ultra-Orthodox are trying to do with these billboards is say, look, you criticize us, right? We don't promote this kind of delegitimization of, of, of the American story. Now, how proactive they are in inculcating patriotism and uh, do the kids know about, you know, uh, well about the story of the American Revolution and uh, the, the Articles of Confederation? Do they know that stuff? I don't know. I don't think so. 
I, I agree with you. I think that um, this is really a little bit of a uh, a political move to deflect criticism and to shoot a salvo against what's happening in the in the public schools. I, I would say that this is a way of satisfying the guys who go to a good style shuls, you know, and are and are and tend to vote you know, right wing and tend to vote Republican and even for Trump and, 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 and the progressive left for a whole host of some very good reasons and want to, you know, and, and, and get satisfaction out of saying, ah, we're not like that. Ha, huh. we're publicly declaring that's no good while at the same time defending our own institutions. Well, again, it's, it's, it, it put it this way. Had it not, had I not been so cynical, had it not been phrased in such a way which, you know, even as Weibel's statement is, the bulwark of our schools is Hakaris Atov, right? He knows that they're not being taught American history or the idealism of, of the United States or the significance of the Constitution. He knows that what they've been learning about is Hakaris Atov, and therefore, as you say, Hakaris Atov can be adapted uh, to love of country. You and I were raised in a world where we were unabashedly proud being American. I believe the ultra-Orthodox community today does, they don't have Gentile Appreciation Week in Jewish, in, in, the, in the right-wing Orthodox schools, no. So no matter what the Gentile did, whether creating America, which has been great to the Jews, I don't think that's highlighted in ultra-Orthodox schools, no. As much as I vehemently disagree with so many of the ideas that that have been put forward from the Rav Avigdor Miller, he was a champion of the idea of celebrating the United States, of flying the American flag. And I saw this by, by Rabbi David Meisel's, uh, the, um, who was the Ilar Ruv in Miami Beach, a, a Chesidish, a Holocaust survivor who had a beautiful shul and, uh, had a wonderful minyanim there in, in, in the of Chesidim in, in Miami. Yes, I think that 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 period of flying the flag proudly and and doing it not for cynical tax reasons, that period, we're never going to see that again, uh, I don't think, in the Yiddish Welt. My father came to America in 1951, and uh, he was able to obtain American citizenship in November 1956. He passed the citizenship test that was incumbent upon him, which was to know elements of the Constitution and other things. When one of his children was born that morning on the way to the hospital to meet my mother and cradle his child, he went to vote and he voted for Eisenhower. And he told me that that this was important to him, as important as it was to meet his wife and child and to celebrate the birth, the miracle of birth, he was a proud American. He'd come from a, a Poland that had decimated and destroyed his family. And here he was, he had worked as hard as possible as an American to become an American citizen, to, to have enough money to finally afford things for his growing family. And being a citizen and voting was such a source for him that he could have a some voice in this country where he had been denied and been hunted. 
uh, in Europe. So I think this is, I think part of that is filters through. I know your, your father had a similar love of country and under, uh, of this country. And I think because, you know, they came from a different era, we, the first generation American kids, we had a different understanding of what the United States was as well. I, I think another thing, Ralph, is the, is the cynicism that erupted, I guess, during Watergate and beyond. So many of the kids that were born in the, like we were born in the 50s and 60s, but the kids that were born in the 80s and 90s, you know, this was an America that was, an America was already very cynical. A mark of sophistication, right, was a cynical, jaundiced view of American life and American history and highlighting its errors as if those characterized the, the whole story. Uh, and and it, we tore ourselves down. There's no question. We tore ourselves down. After 9-11, with the debacle in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, uh, you know, in the, the banking crisis and recession, and they haven't seen America at its best, you know. And, uh, you know, and for many uh, flawed leaders like Biden and Trump certainly don't boost one's pride in America. Uh, it's harder today to teach that kind of unbridled patriotism that we uh, that, that we grew up with. I even think about you know John McCain uh, in this sense. You know John McCain had the you know he was quite unlucky uh, that the person he decided to run against you know was a considered a, uh, a, a extremely important historical figure for the world not only for the United States, Barack Obama. The Democrats, what they did to good people like Mitt Romney and John McCain and how they labeled anybody who was their opponent as being a racist or, or whatever, he, you know, that contributes a lot today to their lack of credibility when it's needed to go after somebody like Trump. Um, you know, they, they've been vilifying, you know, Republican candidates since Barry Goldwater. And earlier, uh, you know, uh, uh, look what, uh, you know, Truman said about Dewey. It goes back, you know, and uh, they've been vilifying in the worst possible way. They're, 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 they're political opponents, not as being misguided, but as being evil. And uh, when they finally need those words at a crucial moment, they don't have them anymore. Right. But let's talk about, you know, Trump himself, of course, who, you know, when when it was brought, I think, to his attention that McCain should be considered a hero for his, uh, you know, his, his, his surviving uh, as a prisoner of war and, and the wounds that he suffered. He said, well, to me, the hero is the guy who doesn't get captured. <laughs> I mean, Trump is on record on multiple occasions of disparaging service, disparaging those who serve in the army as losers and suckers. I mean, that's a patriot. That's somebody you want in the White House. The irony of Donald Trump is that many of the issues the left claims to be so worried about Donald Trump is Trump being a Democrat, right? Trump is a lifelong Democrat. That's why he's anti-free trade, anti-immigration, which was the Democratic position till yesterday, right? The only time the Democrats became pro-immigration, vilifying anybody who's anti-immigration as a racist, uh, was only when Donald Trump took the issue on. Before that, it was the Democrats that were anti-immigration for depressing the wages of the underclass uh, and, and for going and, and for hurting unions and everything else. Uh, you know, his positions, you know, Trump's positions became racist and, and open to criticism from the left 
only when he embraced what were traditional democratic positions. Let's end today with moving to Eretz Yisrael. I think we've we've taken care of American politics, a good of politics. When the war broke out months ago, you and I spoke on this platform about how the day of reckoning was going to be very apparent for Netanyahu. How do you read it now? I don't know. It's um, it's a very confused situation. On the one hand, the army is is magnificent. They're doing what they have to do. There continue to be uh, problems as there were yesterday in, in places that many thought had been cleaned up, but they're continuing to do what they have to do. W- will they go into Rafa? Seems like it. When they'll go ra- into Rafa, no one knows. People are talking about a, a ceasefire through Ramadan. Uh, there's renewed glint, very tiny hints of progress in hostage talks this morning. But uh, no one knows what that means. I mean, uh, I don't believe Israel can walk away without going into Rafa. I don't think they can. But again, uh, you know, people are, you know, uh, America vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for an immediate unconditional uh, ceasefire. But they themselves are proposing a Security Council resolution, which talks about, you know, a, a, a kind of a ceasefire as well, you know, with certain conditions. And there's no question that world leaders are more and more calling for a ceasefire, you know, from Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and other so places. Where, where do you see Netanyahu? Uh, do you see him knuckling under the pressure to resign? Or do you see him saying, I've got to stay here no, as we're pressing this? I don't, I don't, I mean, there's no resignation in the, in the near term. But for the first time you saw last week, unnamed, we could members of Knesset talking about everybody knows that when when it's over, Bibi's gone. That you know, you're starting to hear it even from within Likud. So um it's hard to imagine uh, a Bibi being able to hang on. But again, in order for them to fall, they have sixty five votes in the Knesset. In order for them to fall, one of two things have to happen. Either one of the parties of the coalition pulls out, either for a policy issue like you know, uh, Bibi does something, uh, you know, uh, with the hostages, a deal, or, or doesn't go to Rafa, then you might have the right-wing parties pull out, uh, or a coup within could to replace their own leader. It's hard to figure out how the government collapses. Everybody believes that Bibi should go, but how does that happen? What's the mechanism? Who is the one that, you know, that, that pulls the plug? Uh, and so far, there's no uh, hint, hint right. of that. Right, especially since, you know, if if the war is pushed to what's considered a satisfactory conclusion, which, again, this is questionable, uh, Bibi can always point to the fact his steady hand was on the wheel this whole time. Yeah, again, it's, you know, he seems to be, I think he's permanently discredited. That's my reading of the polls. And uh, the question is, at a moment when Israel has moved to the right, on all issues related to the Palestinians. It's at that very moment that the standard bearer of the right has been discredited. So the question is, where do those voters go? Right? The polls show Smotrich not getting, you know, not, not even crossing the threshold. I shouldn't say polls. One poll. Um, and, and But they show Ben Gvir going up. They show Lieberman going up. Uh, and Gantz skyrocketing. So uh, that's what the polls show. But again, uh, I haven't seen recent polls about what it would mean if Naftali Bennett returned uh, to, to, to an election campaign. It's hard to know. But uh, 
the parties that now constitute Likud's coalition, according to every poll, will suffer an enormous decrease in numbers. And again, we'll see, of course, you know, again, we all, as, as we say, the we're coming into Purim Cotton this week and as the Ramos says, to be marbiktsas, hopefully uh, you will be able to be marbiktsas in some sort of uh, sudas and simchas. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you next week. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.